Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NoCo FM. Please don't go. I need you so I... Welcome listeners to Feminist Hot Dog, the podcast about finding joy through feminism and living your best feminist life. I'm your host, Adrienne Vandervalk, and you picked a great episode to listen to today. It's one I've been thinking about a lot since I recorded these interviews back in January when I had the privilege of visiting the home of Yiwan Chong and Brooks Nelson, two activists, advocates, and filmmakers who live in Portland, Oregon. Brooks and Yiwan both identify as transmasculine. That's relevant because today's episode is about their experience as self-described trans dudes who were both diagnosed with cancers that are commonly associated with the bodies of cisgender women, namely breast and ovarian cancer. And they made a movie about their experience called Trans Dudes with Lady Cancer that they are putting out into the world for a lot of reasons, which we'll talk about, But the big one is to help folks within the medical system understand that people of many genders could be diagnosed with these cancers and that healthcare professionals need education and preparation in how to serve transgender, gender nonconforming, and gender expansive folks beyond using the right pronouns. Although, of course, that's an important place to begin. So the details of Brooks and Yiwan's diagnoses are pretty incredible in the truest sense of the word incredible, like they are almost unbelievable. So I'm going to get out of the way and let them tell the story of how they discovered that they were trans dudes with lady cancer. Here's Brooks. I had something going on with my body and I didn't feel good. And there were a whole number of things like I had to pee every five minutes, like super uncomfortable And I've actually, I was feeling around my own body and I was like, wait a minute. I think there's something there that's not supposed to be there. I went to a doctor, my primary care physician, and it was like, no, nothing. This persisted for months. So I went back to the doctor and I said, I I have something. It could be food poisoning, it could be worms, it could be a whole bunch of things, but something is going on and I need some help trying to fix it. The primary care physician said, you're a little young, but let's go ahead and send you to the gastroenterologist and just make sure everything's clear. So I go to the, the gastroenterologist and through the course of, the, of that appointment, he's like, okay, this is what's going to happen. You're going to get a colonoscopy. This is the deal. And, and he was... He was touching my stomach and I describe it as he was petting my stomach. Like I pet my dog's stomach, like really superficially. And I was like, no, like get down in there, man. Like there's something going on. And he was like, there's nothing in there. There's nothing in there, but intestines. So that's not it. So then I get my colonoscopy. It comes back perfectly clear. I feel like I'm at a a loss. So I go, we, you want and I have the same naturopath. So I make an appointment with the naturopath and say, here's what I've done so far. I just need you to tell me I'm not crazy. I need you to feel my stomach and tell me what's going on. And she felt it and was literally, holy crap. It feels like you have a papaya in your stomach. So that's about the size that we were talking about. 
So then she called my primary care physician and said, hey, for reals, there's something in Brooks's stomach. Let's get a scan scheduled. As you will hear, Brooks and Yiwan's stories intersect in so many ways, it's freaky. If you watch a lot of TED Talks, you may recognize Yiwan. He did a great talk called Beyond the Gender Binary back in 2012, in which he talks about why he left Malaysia and sought political asylum in the United States. I'll link it in the show notes. Here's Yiwan explaining how his diagnosis happened. I didn't feel anything. I was actually pretty healthy. It was one of the first times in my memory that I feel like, oh, I'm going to my annual checkup and I have nothing to complain about. I feel great. So my doctor is a naturopathic doctor and it's the same doctor that Brooks went to, Dr. Scopes. I picked her many, many years ago. The first like first time I ever moved here and looked for a doctor, I found Dr. Scopes because she is a transgender expert. And so she has always been my primary care physician, even like with me changing insurance and changing systems, I always kept her. I had gone through top surgery in 2012, so like four years before that. So I've always kept her all along. And even after my top surgery, she was still examining all the different parts of my body, including my chest. And that year when I did my annual exam, she said she felt something and she said i'm gonna order a scan for you to to get an ultra uh, ultrasound scan and you can go there right right away so i basically like went pretty soon after and they did a scan they did an ultra scan and they said we find we found something that's not just on your chest but kind of in the armpit area we're gonna do a biopsy and so they biopsied it. I found out a week later that it was stage two uh, breast cancer. So Yiwan's diagnosis was just before mine because the day that I had in, so Dr. Scopes calls my primary care. They set up a scan. It's months out. I asked to be put on a cancellation appointment list, get one on the same day that Yiwan and I are supposed to go and meet his oncologist. So the day that they identified the tumor in my body was the exact same day that we met Yiwan's oncologist. We call that Pi Day. If you're wondering why they called it Pi Day, which I was, Brooks explained it this way. When you and your housemate, who's also your chosen family member, get diagnosed with cancer within days of each other, you get to eat whatever you want. That day, Yiwan and Brooks ate a lot of pie. They also went to the movies to distract themselves from the enormity of what was happening. I have to say, at this point in the interview, I was really impressed by their coping skills. I want to pause here and talk about something else that impressed me, which was the chosen family relationship that Brooks and Yiwan share. They mentioned this a number of times throughout our conversation, both in the context of how much they relied on each other and their respective chosen families during their cancer ordeals, but also in the context of how we as a society define family. Oregon actually has some pretty progressive legislation that would, for example, 
allow someone to use their own sick days to care for a chosen family member who fell ill. This isn't the case in a lot of places. Yiwan and Brooks are committed to changing that. In fact, if you Google Oregon Law Chosen Family, the first article that comes up features Yiwan and Brooks. I'll link it in the show notes. Getting back to the story, however, I am happy to report that Brooks and Yiwan are healthy and doing great now. But given how sick they both were at the time, I really wanted to know what on earth made them decide to make a movie when they were going through such an ordeal. When I was going through chemo, the person who runs the Basic Rights Oregon, the LGBTQ advocacy organization here in Oregon, they were hosting the Equality Federation Conference, so all the statewide LGBTQ advocacy organization, their conference. And they had this kind of TED Talk style event that they wanted wanted to organize. And they had asked me if I would talk about my cancer uh, as the talk. And I said yes, but then I got too sick to do it. In the process of like saying yes and kind of planning the talk, you know, I engaged the household to kind of get ideas, think about a catchy title. And, you know, we came up with the title, Trans Dude with Dudes with Lady Cancer. And we, like, loved the title. And, um, <laughs> but then I... I love the title. <laughs> and we, but we couldn't do anything. Like, I was too sick to do anything. But I think, like, part of that process, I know, helped me to think about, like, this is too, I don't know what, coincidental or, like, what are the chances of this happening we should buy a lottery ticket <laughs> you know so like who else can tell a story like that like two people who live together diagnosed the same month by the same doctor and like different parts of our body that are related to gender that's just like i don't know if anyone else can say that that happened to them so that kind of prompted the idea of a movie and brooks being uh, a filmmaker um, just you know and I being a person who talks about my story very openly just felt like it was a uh, something that we needed to do I'm just going to jump in here with the relevant detail that Brooks is a documentary filmmaker he has a production company called Boxo Productions and he's particularly interested in the ways that politics are fundamentally built into the systems that surround us systems like the medical system I like documentaries because as because media is not neutral and anyone who says it is 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 wrong or lying so either they're intentionally or unintentionally wrong and so once you embrace that and you say okay if we were to make a documentary we have both done enough political activity or organizing that we were like what's the purpose of us sharing this unique story and so we went somewhere probably to the grocery store over breakfast whatever and we made a list of all of the things that we would like to impact through making a documentary about it brooks and yiwan produced trans dudes with lady cancer with four primary goals in mind so our first goal is to uh, get the message out to the transgender community that if you have the part you need to get a check you know like my exam like took several seconds and Dr. Scope found the tumor. Um, the tumor actually was really small, uh, so small that when I saw my 
uh, medical oncologist, he couldn't find it. He, uh, he actually had to ask me to point it out to him. And then he said, wow, Dr. Scopes is amazing. I wouldn't have found this myself. You know, some of these exams are, are quick. It might be uncomfortable, especially with the body part that people may not associate with their gender. But it's really important. It saves lives. Uh, we often have heard from other trans people that uh, their top surgeon, um, so the surgeon that does their top surgery, uh, actually to- told them that now now that you have top surgery, you, you don't have to worry about cancer. So there is misinformation that is being given out. Like, not all surgeons uh, say that. Like, my surgeon didn't. But we are hearing stories from people that their surgeons tell them, give them misinformation. So that's goal one. That's super, super common, too. Anyone who's had any kind of reconstructive surgery on their chest, somebody's probably said, oh, you don't have to worry. And so they might be, whoever that person is, might be skipping regular exams or mammograms or whatever. And it is not true. And that has to get like put out there. Yeah. And um, we have fil- uh, screened the, f- uh, the film now about, I don't know, close to 30 times. Uh, a lot of uh, healthcare places and some of them are schools. And there were actually questions from the audience. Now, so these are school of medicine, nursing, whatever. There are people who actually have asked us, what is the difference between a double mastectomy and chest reconstruction surgery? Because they were equating that as the same thing in their minds. Okay, confession time. I didn't know the difference between a double mastectomy and a chest reconstruction. So in case you also didn't know, here's a quick lesson. A mastectomy might involve the total removal of breasts or it might not. A lot depends on the type of cancer a patient has and the shape and size of that person's breasts. According to the Mayo Clinic website, chest reconstruction or top surgery for transgender or gender expansive patients involves more than a mastectomy for treatment of breast cancer. Special techniques are used to contour and reduce the chest wall position the nipples and areola, and minimize scarring. In neither case does the surgery guarantee that the patient won't develop, or in the case of mastectomy for breast cancer, redevelop cancer. The second thing was, how do we begin this conversation with practitioners like you want us talking about? So talking to practitioners about myth-busting, competent care, through the through sharing our experience, be able to raise conversations so that people who want to provide respectful, competent care have some better tools to do that. So really focused on the individuals within the medical system. What we realized through that, which leads to goal three, is how do we actually inspire those individuals to help us change the institutions in which they work? So an awesome doctor It has a lot of power for the individual, but that doctor talking to the board of the hospital about what's included and what's okay and what's not okay would impact many more people. So we didn't want to stop at the individuals, as powerful as that is, but they also have the most powerful voice within the institution. Hospitals, insurance companies, medical practices, nursing schools, like we could impact way more people if we could get some help changing the institution. So you can kind of tell from our title that we took, we were trying to convey 
not only content, but tone. And the tone has been very effective as an accessible learning tool. So what we have heard from people, right? We've joked that we could have made a really different movie and called it every crappy thing that happened to trans masculine people while going through cancer within the medical system. And we chose not to do that. So by really this personal approach, the attitude that we wanted to bring to it, the desire to open a conversation, we have heard from really big institutions that it is a great tool to start the conversation. So the last goal um, is for us to use this opportunity to talk about the larger healthcare system and also the larger issue around our environment and, you know, uh, cancer is kind of pervasive. A lot of families are affected by that. So to have this larger conversation, there's so many things that we can discuss about this issue. So one being we are, we consider ourselves pretty lucky living in Portland, having pretty good access and information to transgender friendly care. And that's not the case in many different parts of the country. And in some of these places, the best place for people to get care, for trans people to get care, is Planned Parenthood. And so the, you know, the political kind of attack of an institution that provides such important health care to so many people in their margins is, is impacting lives. So that's one example. Another example is that uh, it's actually pretty obvious in a movie uh, this concept of chosen family. Uh, so it's something that both Brooks and I kind of work on supporting. So we, for instance, supporting it through like paid family leave that expand the definition of family beyond biological family or uh, nuclear family or marriage. And that we, I think, do a pretty successful job in the movie showing it, even though we don't explicitly talk about it as a as a topic so that's one and then just you know about like so much of cancer we talk about it as like a genetic issue but really is it (laughs) you know what are we putting in our environment how are we poisoning ourselves uh, in that in that way that cancer has to be talked about in this larger context of our environment and taking care of our environment I think it's the fourth goal that really helps us bridge from the specific issue around trans healthcare to this is about gender justice. This is about reproductive justice. This is about environmental justice. That is the conversation that I want this movie to spark because making it better for trans folks within the medical system will inherently make it better for other folks within the medical system. And it's that opportunity to have the conversation because I don't know, trans folks are some percentage of 1% of the population. We can't do anything on our own. But once we start to make these connections to broader movements or broader groups of people, then, right, as somebody who believes in a progressive movement, we can move all of these things forward and increase survivability, respect within the system, like all kinds of stuff for all kinds of people. I don't know about you, but I got chills when Brooke said that.
The goals Yi Wan and Brooke set out to achieve with their movie are grounded in very real needs. And I want to make sure that I'm making that clear. Even for two well-resourced and very well-informed individuals, this experience held a lot of unknowns and a tremendous amount of anxiety. Brooke shared this story, which I think is a really powerful illustration of not only what trans folks often go through when they seek medical treatment, but of the unique experience of being diagnosed with a cancer that affects a part of your body you may have a conflicted or at least somewhat complicated relationship with. I do think it's way more complicated. Right, cancer sucks. Cancer totally sucks. It sucks for everybody. It sucks for the individual and their family and everybody around them. And I don't know. I felt a little betrayed, maybe. I think for a second, I wondered if it was some kind of punishment. I got over that one pretty quickly. But that's definitely my upbringing. I have to be more anxious going in to see, see any practitioner I've never seen before. That's always true for trans folks. But then... Like my capacity, like my jar of ability to deal with people and stuff and all of that was already lower because of everything that was going on. I had to go to urgent care after my surgery because I was in so much pain and I got there and I was just like, I can't do it. I literally can't in, in my state right now deal with anybody who's going to do anything other than help me. And I can't trust that they're going to help me. So I went home. I asked Brooks and Yuan to talk about some other examples of how transphobia and the realities of being trans showed up during the course of their treatments. One of the ways that transphobia within the medical system might be a little surprising is the base requirements. So they, I had had a transvaginal ultrasound. They needed more information in order to set a course for treatment, including a CT scan, one of one of the big scanny scan things, which they would not perform unless I had a pregnancy test. And I am like, are you for reals? Like, I have to pay you for a pregnancy test so that you can tell your insurance company that you're not open to some kind of liability as scanning a pregnant person? Like, that ain't that ain't right and that's you know and then the trickle down of that which is because of this their risk averseness isn't that in fact driving up the cost of your medical care you know dealing with the healthcare system i have to say that i'm so thankful and grateful for dr scopes she went out of her way to find me in colleges called them talked to them asked them if they have experience with trans people um, you know, just really lined that up for me. And so I didn't have to go look for oncologists. She recommended and kind of vetted them before I went to my appointments with them. That was amazing. But that doesn't always happen when I go for my surgery because my oncology office is not part of a hospital. And so now I'm exposed to a larger system that, you know, works more like a factory instead of a clinic. And that's where a lot of the misgendering started to happen. So from the person who is at the counter checking people in to, you know, handing off from one nurse to the other. So my first surgery is the implant. My second surgery was a lumpectomy. And I had a appointment with a nurse before the surgery. And I had told her about my gender, about my pronouns. And she said, okay, I'm writing in the notes. 
Well, she wrote it in notes, but again, the person at the front desk checking me in don't have the time to look for Didn't read the notes. Out. Yeah. Yeah. So already the first thing of checking in, I got misgendered. And we actually have a pretty funny story about this because I had, um, so Brooks was with me and my other chosen family member, Andre, was with me. So we checked in and they misgendered me right away. So when I first got into, you know, was diagnosed and did all this treatment, my medical records had me down as male, M, because when I was on the phone call for a, to make an appointment, I told them I'm transgender, I use he pronoun, and that person probably just put M, changed my gender for some reason, which was fine. But at some point, I got a transvaginal ultrasound. So in order for the insurance to cover that, the healthcare institution changed my gender to F. And so when I went into the hospital to uh, for the surgery, because of the F, the front desk person used she pronouns with me. Okay, so both Brooks and Andre was there with me. We, you know, we were at this place of like, uh, we don't want to emotionally, you know, just getting ready for surgery is already hard. So we didn't really do anything about it. So we waited and... If you're going through surgery, you know, they tell you to like only bring one person in because the room is so small. So Brooks came in with me, Andre was outside. And at some point in that room, so Brooks and the nurse and I was there. It's already pretty crowded. At some point, there were like seven people, seven people in the room. (laughs) So what happened was Andre went back to the front desk and talked to them about misgendering me okay this is where i have to jump in because andre i he's a dear friend but he's not my chosen family so i can say okay andre is an east coast union organizer he knows how to persuade people and he full on well we're i'm focused on yuan we're back really trying to like calm down and be focused on the upcoming surgery andre has opened a can of whoop ass (laughs) all over reception and that is why all of those people descended on the room. Yeah. I just, I want to make sure we, I want to paint the picture of who was doing this. Yeah. Well, and at this point, I feel like I was the spectator because I was in my bed with that little bear thing. Um, and, you know, watching all these people talking and <laughs> talking about it. So, you remember? So that, well, this is my perception of it. They came in and they were like, yep, we will totally change everything. This is the deal. Like, happy to do it. Like I, They were all in. And in that moment, this is the sucky part or the part that's related specifically to how transphobia may show up in ways that you don't think about. I had to say to that room, if this guy needs another surgery, if this guy needs a hysterectomy because of the receptors of the kind of cancer that he has in two months, I don't want to fight with the insurance company in two months. So what I want you to do is leave his gender the same on his chart, but get his pronoun right. Like we had to say, don't fix it. So for me, like back to goal one, the competency of people were great. In fact, the the nurse was really compassionate. I thought really caring and try so hard to 
right, educate any other like peer or coworker of hers as they come into the room. So this is where cultural competency is great and is, there's also its limitation if the institutions don't actually set up systems to support those individuals. So my time in the, in, in the hospital was long because I had the surgery and then you recover from anesthesia before they check you out. And so we were there for like maybe 16 hours or so. And the shifts change. So different nurses come in and, you know, now you have to do all the education again. And at some point, so my third surgery was my double, uh, double mastectomy. Someone came in and asked me if I wanted uh, breast prosthetics. Yeah, we heard that they might be required to, but even that, if you know what you're going into, I could imagine if a cisgendered man had a whole bunch of tissue removed from his chest, you know, fat or whatever, it could be caved in. Great, get that guy just what he needs. But like, even if you say, this could seem super weird talking to a dude about this, But if you don't feel good about how you look, there are medical products that can help. Like there's ways to have that conversation that are respectful of that person's gender, regardless of what it is. So, you know, if there's some way that they can, again, either with time, look at a chart more carefully or have the system where like demographic information say that right out front and, you know, so not just like in a very binary way of thinking about care. Both Brooks and Yi Wan commented on how many caring professionals they encountered during the course of their treatment, and that oncology care felt, in some ways, like the care they received from their naturopathic physician. They developed relationships with their doctors and nurses. The staff got to know about many facets of their lives, not just their bodies or their test levels. They grew to really trust, particularly the nurses, who told them over and over how much they wished they had more time to spend with patients. So although they saw firsthand many of the ways the healthcare system is broken, they both saw a glimmer of what it could be, and they both came away from the experience with reasons to hope. We found incredible people, even within that bureaucracy. So Dr. Steiner, she is smart and good at her job and also expansive in her thinking she talks about it in the movie. She's a gynecological oncologist. Nobody wants to go see her. So she is always thinking about, I know you don't want to be here, so how do I make it easier? Not on me, but on me and you and you and you and you. So, And that's within a really mainstream organization. So that, that brings me hope. It can be done. It must not cost a whole bunch more or they wouldn't do it. It's possible. The stories that people tell me gives me a lot of hope so for example Katie the oncologist is neither one of our doctors she's a radiation oncologist who found out about the movie and gave a very specific story uh, that she overheard one of her his her, her colleague saying something that was an error you know similar to what I mentioned earlier that's what tops top surgeons would say to their uh, patients that trans people with after top surgery are uh, at zero risk of cancer. She overheard a colleague saying that, oh yeah, we don't have to worry about that because they had a double mastectomy and she was able to correct them. 
because now her knowledge is heightened around the difference between chest reconstruction surgery and double mastectomy. So there, there were there are many tiny little stories like that that gives me hope. One of the recent screenings that we did was at the Oregon Health and Sciences University. It's a teaching hospital. And the person who invited me to do the screening is a student. And it's a class that is a student-run class. Second-year student designed the class for first-year students. And so young people are thinking about this. You know, and if a student, like, took the initiative to make sure that this is added, it was a, it was a class about structural issues that, um, structural oppression that patients have to deal with even before coming to care. I mean, how amazing is that? So, you know, transgender issue was one topic, but that was one of many topics that they covered. And so I'm really hopeful that this is a much discussed topic for younger people. I want to extend a heartfelt thanks to Brooks and Yiwan for opening their home to me and being so generous with their story. If you work in the medical field and you'd like to bring trans dudes with lady cancer to your institution, you can reach Brooks and Yiwan at transdudeswithladycancer.org. You can also watch the trailer and learn more about their work outside of the documentary. I'll be posting some additional clips from this interview for my patrons later this week. If you'd like to get access to these audio extras, head on over to the Patreon link in the show notes. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month. Our theme music is by Abel Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, love yourself and love your bands. Goodbye. This has been a production of NOCO FM.